All right, this morning we're going to Matthew chapter 21. To start, we're going to end up back in Mark 11, but let's start in Matthew chapter 21. In our responsive reading, we've already read Mark's account of the triumphal entry. I want to look at Matthew's account of the triumphal entry as well. So we're going to read that from Matthew 21, starting at verse 1 down through verse 11. Matthew chapter 21 starting at verse 1 down through verse 11. If you follow along, the Bible says, When they drew nigh into Jerusalem, that's talking about Jesus and his disciples, and were come to Bethphage unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass, and the colt full of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and he, they that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Let's take a minute and pray, and then we'll get into our message this morning. Father, we all need your help at this point as we study your word together, as we read your word, as we give attention to what you want to teach us. And so I pray that you would open our minds and hearts to the work of your spirit. Teach us those things that are important for us to understand and that apply to us and convict us by your spirit, if need be. Lord, we just lift up your son, Jesus Christ, today. We want him to receive the glory and honor through everything and through this church. That is your purpose. And so may that be accomplished even during this time as we look at your word together. Lord, I need your strength and help and wisdom, so fill me with your spirit. Give me all that I need to speak your words. May you speak through me so we might be challenged by your truth today. And Lord, we give you the praise and honor and glory during this time, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. When you think of Palm Sunday, we obviously think of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. This happened about four days before his crucifixion, about a week before he resurrected from the dead. And this morning we've read in two different passages how the crowds of people, and when we say crowds, we're not talking 20 or 30 or 100 The scholars think this may have been as in the tens of thousands, as many as 100,000 people. And they're not all right at the gate of the city, but this all happens as Jesus rides from Bethany, where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived, across the Mount of Olives and then down into Jerusalem. And so think of the tens of thousands of people lining that road, casting their coats down, waving palm branches and putting branches in the road, and praising Christ as he comes to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, the phrase that they used is important because one of the phrases 
they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is not just something they came up with. This is important because this phrase actually comes from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is what we would know as a messianic prophecy, an Old Testament prophecy that points to Jesus as the Messiah. This is what Psalm 118, 24 through 26 says. This is the day the Lord has made. There you go. Now you know where that comes from. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Now there's a lot in there, okay? It says, blessed, or this is the day the Lord has made. In other words, this is the day we've been looking forward to. When the Messiah has come, here he is. And so they're rejoicing. O Lord, do save. The word do save is the word we read in the New Testament, Hosanna. It means save now. And then they say, O Lord, we beseech you to send prosperity. And that was what God had promised Israel when Christ would come, the Messiah would come to set up his kingdom, that Israel would be restored to their land, they'd be restored to fellowship with God, they'd be exalted as a nation once again. All of that is in Old Testament prophecy to Israel. That's the promises of God. And so in this prayer in Psalm 118, the psalmist and the people are praying, Lord, restore that prosperity in your kingdom. And then they say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Now, all of that is important because all of it points to that Jesus is the Messiah, and I want to point out these things. There's, there's three parts that are important. The people rejoice because the day of the Messiah's arrival has come in verse 24. Verse 25 is a prayer for the Lord to restore the prosperity, to save now and restore that prosperity. Again, a promise of God. And then verse 26, they use the word, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is significant because it's only used of what of the promised Messiah that would come. But then it also says that they have blessed or praised him from the house of the Lord. And that's important as we look in this passage in Matthew and also in Mark, because what we usually read and what we've read so far is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem before he gets to the gates. We stop there usually. We talk about that usually, which we're doing now, and it's appropriate. But there's something else that happens that day or the next day, actually, that's important. The people worshiping him on this day was important because they are truly recognizing him as the Messiah. Tens of thousands, possibly a 100,000 Jews in the capital city of of Jerusalem claiming Jesus to be the promised Messiah. They didn't doubt that at this point. Many of them had just seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. They had heard about all his miracles. And they figured, if a guy can raise another person from the dead, he must be the one. And so they recognize him truly as the Messiah. In Mark's gospel, where we read for our responsive reading, we see that people also use this phrase, blessed be the kingdom of our father David. In Matthew, it just says that it is the son of David. Okay, but in Mark, it records, blessed be the kingdom of our father David. Now, the Messiah had to be a descendant of King David. That was part of the promise of God. That was part of the prophecy 
that was ingrained in what we call the Davidic covenant, the promise that God gave to David that his throne would be established forever on earth and that his descendants would sit on that throne forever. Now, we know in world history that didn't happen consecutively or permanently throughout history. In fact, it wasn't long after David, just a few hundred years after David came Solomon, after Solomon the kingdom was divided, and then after a few hundred years, there was no more Israel and there was no more Judah. Israel was destroyed and exiled. So there was nobody on that throne. There was no throne. So was God's promise fulfilled? Yes, because Jesus is on that throne. He always has been. He always will be. But on earth, he will come to sit on that throne in his millennial kingdom at the end of time. And from there on, he will be on that throne forever. But the people here took that prophecy of the coming king and applied it to Jesus that day. They thought This is it. He's coming as king. He's going to overthrow Rome. We're going to have our nation back. We're going to have all the blessings that God promised. And they used this word, Hosanna, save us now. They weren't claiming spiritual salvation. They were claiming physical salvation from bondage under Rome. But it's truly an authentic worship of Jesus as the Messiah, at least in the outward display of things. So there's no doubt that the people recognized him as the Messiah. But there's one other event that I already mentioned that happened that in this course of events as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And I want you to go back to Mark 11 for me. Turn back there because I want you to see this in Scripture. It's not a long passage, just three or four verses. Mark chapter 11. This is also recorded in Matthew and in Luke. But in Mark chapter 11, we read the first 11 verses. And then verses 12 through 14, we have the event where Jesus curses the fig tree because there's no fruit on it, and it dies in a day. Now, there's a lesson there for us as well. But we're going to save that for another day. I want you to look at starting at verse 15. And this is the next day after Jesus comes to Jerusalem. And he goes out, he sees the fig tree, and then he comes back to Jerusalem in verse 15 of Mark 11. And it says, And they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple, and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. It would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, It is not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer. I'm sorry, is it not written, that my house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But ye have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it, and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his doctrine." One of the first things that Jesus does as he's recognized as the Messiah is go into the temple and throw out the money changers, throw out the merchants, turn over the tables of the money and the merchandise that they were selling. And people forget that. 
This happened literally as one of the first events that he did after being accepted as the Messiah by the majority of people in Jerusalem. Now, this isn't the only time he does this. He actually does this at the beginning of his ministry. But I want to focus this morning in just a few minutes that we have to look at the occasions when Jesus enters into the temple and cleanses it. The first time is not here. This is the second time. The first time is at the beginning of his ministry. He doesn't come with fanfare. In fact, hardly anybody knows who he is. Very few people recognize him at all. And it's just shortly after he performs his first miracle of turning water into wine at the wedding of Cana. And as he comes back from Cana into Jerusalem, the apostle John records this event for us. In chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, he says, And the Jews' Passover was at hand. Now, that's the time that we're talking about in Mark 11 as well. Jesus died at Passover. This is just a week before his resurrection. So the time of Passover is at hand. Jesus is going into the temple. He's overturning the money changers. But he did the same thing in John chapter 2 at the very beginning of his ministry. He says, and it found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. So he did the same thing at the very beginning of his ministry. But people didn't really know who he was at that point. There weren't hundreds of thousands of people welcoming him, recognizing him as a Messiah. He was just a guy. Some of them had seen him baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, had seen that, uh, that image or that uh, uh, the, the presentation of the Spirit as a dove rest on him. But they really didn't know who he was. Maybe he was a great teacher. Maybe he's a prophet. We don't know. And so he goes into the temple right after that event, He's just turned water to wine, but a few people knew about that. And now he throws out the money changers. Now, let me explain what he was doing here. Because you have to understand the corrupt um, version of the temple worship that was in play right at this time. In the law, God stipulated that the people must bring sacrifices to the temple at certain times of the year. Passover was one of them. Okay? And God said in the law that the lamb or the the dove that they would bring had to be a perfect animal, had to have no blemishes, no spots. Now, there were people coming from a long way away to worship in Jerusalem. The high priest knew this. The merchants knew this. The scribes and the Pharisees knew this. And it was up to the priests to confirm that the animal met the standard of being without blemish. And so they saw an opportunity to make money. The animals that the people brought themselves, they would say, sorry, that doesn't meet the standard. You can't sacrifice that animal. But lucky for you, we have a merchant sitting right over here that has all perfect animals that you can purchase. And so that's what was happening. The priests were getting a kickback from that. The merchants were making money off that. And of course, because people were desperate to have a perfect animal without blemish, they could charge premium prices. 
And that's what was happening right within the temple compound. And that's why Jesus goes in at the beginning of his ministry and throws all of them out, turns over the money changers' temples and, or tables, and it says he made a cord or a whip of cords and drove them out. So Jesus was dealing with corruption, with greed, false worship, right within the temple. And that was the first time when he was very little known among the people. The second time he does this is recorded in Matthew and Mark, as we've read this morning, and in Luke. This is the day after he rides into Jerusalem in triumph at the end of his ministry. The people have recognized him and praised him as a king, as the promised Messiah. Great fanfare. Tens of thousands of people gathered along the road to proclaim him as the Messiah, quoting the Messianic prophecies applied to him. And again, I mentioned many had seen all the works that he did. In fact, in Luke 19, it says, And when he was come nigh, talking about Jesus coming toward Jerusalem, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. It wasn't accepting Jesus because he was the Messiah. It was accepting Jesus as the Messiah because he had performed all these great things in their, in their uh, view. They had witnessed this. And they figured, someone who can do all these mighty works, he might have the power to overthrow Rome. He may be God's choice to bring us back into our kingdom. The nation Israel exalted again, all the prosperity returned, all the good things that we had under David and Solomon. And even better, because this is going to be a perfect king. Luke 19 calls those people who descended and praised him and worshipped him as a Messiah, he calls them disciples. They were followers of Jesus, and many were true believers in Christ as the Messiah. But they followed Jesus, many of them, because he did great works. He had great teachings. They had never met anybody like this. And if this was maybe the Messiah, they wanted to be connected with that. They don't want to be on the wrong side of the new king. And so they associate themselves with Jesus. They follow him around, and they ascribe to him the title of Messiah as he comes into Jerusalem. Now, the Pharisees were worried about this at this point. In fact, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, even before he comes into Jerusalem in John 12, the Pharisees said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing. In other words, the Pharisees were trying to denigrate Jesus in the eyes of the people. They were trying to dismiss these miracles. They were trying to say, no, he's a false prophet. Go away from him. And yet more and more people were following him. And they come together and they say, it looks like we're not accomplishing anything. And they use this phrase, behold, the world has gone after him. So we're not talking about a few people. We're talking about massive throngs of Jews and Gentiles. But unfortunately, all of those people who Luke calls disciples were misguided. They were misguided 
in their expectations. They're all thinking about the prophecy of Zechariah, which we read in Matthew. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass upon the colt, the foal of an ass. That sounds just like Matthew. That sounds just like what the people did, and it is. Because that was the messianic prophecy that these people were thinking about when they saw Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. But they were looking for a king who would loose them from Rome. They were looking for a Messiah who would restore their land to them, to restore prosperity, as the Messianic prophecy in Psalm 118 says. Lord, restore our our prosperity. And so literally, the Jews who worshipped Jesus and accepted him as the Messiah accepted him with a prosperity gospel. They saw the opportunity for personal gain. And even some of the disciples, the 12 disciples, had this idea because, remember, several of them were arguing who's going to sit on Jesus' right hand when he sets up his throne, who's going to sit on his left hand when he sets up his throne. They expected Jesus not to die. They expected Jesus to overthrow Rome and set up his kingdom right then. And so they were looking for themselves, even, for a high place in this kingdom. Personal gain. So we may rightly condemn the merchants and the corrupt priests who were using the worship in the temple to make money for themselves, but frankly, most of those tens of thousands of people had the same attitude. It just came out in a different way. I want this Messiah, I want the worship of God to benefit me in some way. The motivation of the rest of the people may not have been making a quick buck at the expense of others, but it was, we want Jesus to make our lives better, to give us prosperity back, to take us out from under Roman rule. They didn't want a spiritual deliverer. They wanted a political deliverer. Again, in Luke 19, you read this. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. This is while he's riding on the donkey, coming up to the crest of the Mount of Olives. You can see the city of Jerusalem, and it faces the east gate where the temple is. And this is what, Jesus, what happens when Jesus sees the city in verse 42. Jesus said, he wept over it and said, If you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you and your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave you in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. That was proclaimed by Jesus as he's riding into Jerusalem and he stops at the top of the Mount of Olives and weeps over the city because of their unbelief. And we know that less than 40 years after Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven, Rome destroyed the temple, purged Jerusalem of Jews, millions were slaughtered. And from that point on until 1948, Israel was not a nation. There was no capital city of Jerusalem or a temple, and there still is not a temple to this day. That destruction of Jerusalem and the temple 
was God's judgment on his people because of their unbelief, because of their greed and false worship. So when Jesus went into the temple after his triumphal entry and threw out those money changers and the merchants, it wasn't just those people he was targeting. He was giving a message to all the people. This is not the kingdom that I am bringing in. It's not a physical kingdom of physical prosperity and well-being. It's a spiritual kingdom. And the people didn't want that. They wanted physical wealth, physical prosperity, physical restoration of their land. That's all they wanted. The physical benefits of the promised Messiah. And so Jesus purges the temple here a second time after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem as the recognized Messiah to demonstrate what kind of people would not be part of his kingdom. Now, there's a third occasion when Christ enters this temple and purges out greed and false worship. It's not specifically described that way in Scripture, although we see it. And it's not while Jesus was on earth, after Jesus' ascension. The church is founded. And Jesus tells all those who believe that he gives them the Holy Spirit. He gives them the Spirit of Christ. And so the third entering in of Jesus to his temple, where he wants to purge out greed and false worship, is when we are saved. When we are saved, the Spirit of Christ enters us as we're made to be part of the body of Christ and partakers of the nature of Christ. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, it says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Greed, false worship. That's not what we live for. We are to set our attention, our, our affections on things above. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The old values, the old desires, that should all go away. The greed, personal prosperity, personal well-being, physical blessings. That's not what we live for anymore. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, talking about the spirit of the flesh, the desire for the things of this world, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of our mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others, Paul says. We used to be that way. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together 
with Jesus Christ. By grace are ye saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show us the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. Does it say that when God saves us on this earth in this life, that then is when he's going to show us the exceeding riches of his grace through all the money and things he can provide us with? No, it says in the ages to come, he might show us the exceeding riches of grace. That's heaven. Now, you might say, well, okay, I get the the greed part, but what about the temple? How does Christ enter into the temple? 1 Corinthians 6.19, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and ye are not your own? And Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 6. Verse 16, what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The temple is defined in Scripture as the place where God resides. That was the tabernacle for the children of Israel. The pillar of cloud sat on that tabernacle. That was where they saw the presence of God. The temple became the place of God's residing, if you will, when Solomon dedicated it to the Lord. The Lord said, my presence will be here. And as believers, we are the dwelling place of the Lord Jesus Christ, of his spirit. We are the temple of God. And in this temple, greed And false worship cannot be tolerated by its master. They have to be purged. And so when we're saved, Christ enters in and he does the same thing that he did in the physical temple. He purges out all of the greed, all of the selfishness, all of the false worship that drove people to do what they did. And that's what he does in us now. Christ wants that greed, the false worship, the selfishness to be purged away. And so he's constantly overturning our tables of greed and false worship in our life in preparing us for his kingdom. But here's the question. How often do we go back in and set those tables back up? We want the physical stuff. We want the money. We want the world stuff. We want the, 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 the great things that we see all around us. That's our desire. And sometimes those desires become so strong that they overwhelm our desire for Christ and for the spiritual blessings. And so we become just like those people who welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem that, day, that Palm Sunday And then a week later, we're saying, we don't need him, just get rid of him, crucify him. We want him to make our lives better. That's the way many people see salvation. And that attitude of self-profit and self-preservation, we're living in an attitude of the prosperity gospel. I want, a, I want the Messiah. I accept Jesus as the Messiah. I accept him as my Savior, but I want him to make my life better. I don't want to be sick. I want to have more money. I want to have a better life, easier life, less controversy, less problems. And so I'm going to accept Christ as my Savior, and God will take care of everything. 
And that's not salvation. That's the prosperity gospel. And there are many people who after a while, after calling Jesus Lord, realize they're not getting what they want from him. And they just abandon ship. They walk away. It didn't work. I tried. He didn't give me what I wanted. Hebrews 6 talks about those people. They're not true believers. They've just accepted Jesus as the Messiah for personal gain. Greed, false worship. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 talks about these people. For it's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now, those verses are a warning to all of us that we had better be absolutely sure that in our desire to worship the Lord as our Messiah, as our Savior, that it's not from a motivation of personal gain. That's what the people did. And then they were saying, crucify him. Jesus said to be a true disciple of Christ, we must deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. That means, Lord, whatever happens, it's okay. If I have to suffer, and we will, because he promised we would, that's okay. You are worth more than this physical body and physical comfort. The promise of riches in heaven is worth more than trying to attain the riches and comfort of this earth. We must take up our cross and follow him. And Paul says in Philippians 2 that we are all to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Not fear of what God's going to do to us if we're not good people, but a fear of falling back into selfishness and false worship. We must work not to earn our salvation, but we must work at giving ourselves up, at sacrificing ourselves, at surrendering ourselves to the Lord's purpose for us. And whatever he has planned for us in his deliverance, that's okay because I know something better is coming. We've been looking at that in 1 Peter. And here we see the same thing as Jesus enters our temple and is in the process of overturning our tables of greed and false worship. And the question is, how are you going to respond to his work in that? There's one more event when Jesus will return with much fanfare and acknowledged as the conquering king. It hasn't happened yet. And when he does, he will cleanse both the temple and the entire earth before setting up his kingdom. In Revelation chapter 19, we read about the second coming of Christ. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. His head, on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. 
And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of his fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. At that point, there's nobody who's going to deny that he is the Messiah, that he is the King. They all have to accept it. But when Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation period, he will purge the world of greed and false worship. Now remember, the seven years that precede that are called the tribulation. And in the middle of that time, the Antichrist is going to desecrate the temple in Jerusalem, which will be rebuilt at that time, and set up an image and cause all the people of the world to worship it. And all who fall down and receive his mark will be doomed for eternity. And those are the people that Jesus will purge the earth from when he comes. But he also goes into the temple and purges the temple and cleanses it from all idolatry and false worship and greed. And that is where he sets up his residence for his millennial kingdom. He will cleanse the temple of all sin, and he will purge the earth from all unrepentant sinners. Because in Christ's kingdom, there can't be any greed. There can't be selfishness. There can't be false worship. Even in his kingdom, during those thousand years, those who openly reject him as king will be executed swiftly. And in the end... All those who outwardly offer him worship, but still maintain those tables of greed and false worship in their hearts, will show who they really are as Satan is finally released and gathers together all of those people to rebel against Christ one last time, and all of them will be thrown into the lake of fire forever. That's the end of those who live in their temple in false worship and greed. The message for us today is that Jesus wants to cleanse your temple, the one you live in right now. Being here today, participating in worship, specifically today, demonstrates that you acknowledge at least outwardly that Jesus is the Messiah and King. And today you've come and we've sung songs and we prayed prayers and we say together, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. We look forward, if you're a true believer, to the return of Christ. Because for those who are true believers, it's a blessing. That is the ultimate blessing we look forward to. But the question is, what's happening inside your temple? Do you still maintain those tables of greed, selfishness, false worship? Or are you letting Jesus throw all of that out so that you can be found, as we read in Peter, to be true unto praise and honor and glory at his appearing? The answer to that question and the truth of your condition is demonstrated in how you live. You say, well, I come to church, I sing the songs, I say the prayers. That that doesn't matter. So did all those people. 
What matters is, have you let Jesus be king of your temple, and have you let him purge all of that stuff out that shouldn't be there? If you're only following Christ for what he can give you, then you're no different than the money changers. Or the people that yelled, crucify him, because they didn't get what they wanted from him. True discipleship involves letting Christ purge you from those old desires, what you want, so that the only desire that's left in you is to be a faithful servant and subject of our Messiah and King. The prophecy in Zechariah says, Behold, your king cometh. He is. And if you're a believer, he's already in you. But the question is, when the king comes, what will he find in your temple? Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your love. Your goodness to us is shown in these messages that you give us from your word and the examples that Christ set for us. And Lord, it convicts us of our own selfishness and pride, the things that we want out of life and that we want from you because you are a genie that can give us what we want. But Lord, purge us from those attitudes. I pray that you forgive us for those sins and make us pure within so that our desire is to serve you, to please you, to accept whatever it is that you have planned for us in this life, knowing that we have a greater much greater reward waiting for us in heaven. Lord, teach us to be faithful and help us to submit to your work in the cleansing that you want to do in our lives and in our temple. We give you glory, we give you praise as the Messiah, so teach us to live like we mean it. Thank you again for this lesson. May we be doers and not hearers only, being deceived by our own thoughts. And Lord, may you be glorified in our bodies. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is 388. Have thine own way, Lord.